Hello everyone, welcome back to Talking Politics with the Peace Millennial. Today we're in Parliament Hill with a distinguished Pierre Polyev. Thank you so much for inviting us. My pleasure. Welcome to the Hill. Thank you. A few weeks ago, I met you in Montreal at a fundraiser. You had your campaign set up. You had wonderful people in your organisations. You had what seemed to me at least to be significant support from the membership. And you even had a date set up on the Sunday, I believe. On the Friday, you decided not to run. And I think you rather commendably cited family reasons. I was wondering what the thought process was in making that decision. Was this a long, you know, culminated affair? Or did it come quite quickly? It was uh, fairly long by, uh, relatively speaking, because the period after Andrew Shear stepped down until the period where I decided not to run itself was short. But in the three weeks leading up to my decision, I went back and forth and agonized a lot about whether my family was ready for it. Um, and I, I believe that I was getting to a point where, a point of no return, where I either had to be in 100% or out altogether. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because um, I, was, I had a, a launch date set, there was uh, a requirement to have, uh, sign a lot of contracts, to have people leave their jobs um, and uh, you know, basically go to their boss and say, I'm, I'm leaving to work on Pierre Polyev's mm -hmm. campaign for the next five months. And if I let them do that and then later changed my mind, then I would have left a lot of people in a lurch um, and there would have been a lot of financial implications for their lives. So I realized that if I wasn't 100% in at that moment in time, that my family wasn't 100% ready for it, that I had to make that decision at that time, as, as abrupt as it might have seemed to some people. But uh, I believed uh, to drag it on longer um, without uh, knowing my True, true certainty of running would have been a mistake. Mm -hmm. And you managed to attract fairly prolific political operatives to your campaign. Uh, John Baird, for example, Jenny Byrne. What about you and your vision for Canada attracted these people to support you? Well, my vision was to you know, unleash the economy through the unmatched power of free enterprise. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe in the free enterprise system. I believe it is the greatest single generator of opportunity for people, especially the disadvantaged that has ever been conceived in human history. And uh, that, that's a vision that's shared by a lot of conservatives. It's one that I continue to advance in my role as the shadow minister of finance for the conservatives. Mm -hmm. So uh, th that was the vision that I was pushing and it attracted a lot of people. I think it still does. And I think I can still advance it in the shadow cabinet and hopefully on the government side under the leader that our members pick uh, in June. And the other candidates who are currently in the race, you don't think they also promoted this idea of free enterprise in Canada as much as, say, you did? Uh, I think it remains to be seen. I yeah. hope they do. I hope they all do. Um, I'm, I'll be watching very carefully. The candidates to whom I've spoken since my departure from the race have all, I've told them all that. said I want someone who is a fiscal hawk, mm -hmm. who will restrain government and maximize people's economic freedom. Yeah. And I want to see that as part of their platforms before I'll consider supporting them. Why was the membership so interested in your campaign? I think for the aforementioned reasons. I, yeah. I espouse uh, the values of free enterprise, of uh, opportunity of limited government. I think I've also been willing to stand up to the liberal cabal in Ottawa. There, is, uh, there are some conservatives who believe that you can win by trying to 
twist yourself into a pretzel in order to appease the uh, liberal cabal, the, 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 the media elites who exist on Parliament Hill for the sole purpose of glorifying Justin Trudeau and prolonging his governance. Uh, and you can, you can try to twist yourself into a knot to, try to appease and uh, appeal to them, but they, they will never like you anyway. And I've never tried to appeal to them. I've always stood my ground with them, and I think a lot of people uh, admired that backbone. Right. So who will fill that vacuum? Which leadership candidate do you think is going to attract the membership base that you attracted? That remains to be seen. I think there's uh, an opportunity for any of them to show strong leadership, to stand their ground, to uh, hold the true to the convictions that I advance. And if, if, if they do, I suspect they'll get a lot of support. Mm -hmm. And you haven't yet presumably made up your mind as to whether you'll be supporting any particular candidate. I have not. Will you eventually? if uh, I am so inspired. Mm -hmm. Right. So why do you think the Conservative Party couldn't defeat Justin Trudeau in the last election? Was that as a result of the party's leadership? No, I don't think it's fair to blame Andrew Scheer for everything. Uh, look, um, since the 1930s, I don't think there's a single majority prime minister who's been defeated after just one term. Mm -hmm. um, the world economy is going strong, which has meant that most Canadians uh, are not yet feeling the consequences of Trudeau's economic policies. Uh, I think in Ontario, we had the challenge that um, Premier Ford was doing the necessary but difficult early, early mandate work uh, that Trudeau was able to use against us federally. I don't say that critically of Premier Ford. I actually think he's doing the right things. It's just very hard to do them, and that's why he's doing it in the early term. Unfortunately, that early term uh, overlapped with our uh, election. Uh, that helped Trudeau in certain ridings in the most populous province. Um, and uh, I think if there was uh, one mistake of leadership, and I've, I've already told Andrew Shear and others this, I think that they allowed the media to run the campaign. Uh, they had uh, these long, drawn-out press conferences where uh, liberal journalists who are ardent supporters of Justin Trudeau were able to define effectively what our campaign was about. Um, and the next leader needs to learn from that mistake. Yes. Well, I've noticed a lot of Conservative leadership candidates have been quick, perhaps indirectly, to distance themselves from certain things from Andrew Scheer's leadership election, for example, social issues. I noticed that you too, when you were looking to run, also distance yourself in the same way. For example, with that tweet where you condemned uh, Richard Dickery, and I almost certainly have mispronounced that. But. Well, uh, well, I, well, the reason I tweeted that is because, uh, one, I disagreed with his comment, but two, it's none of his damn business. I mean, uh, since when is it the job of a politician to be making comments about the personal sexuality of, of Canadians? It's mm. just none of, the, none of the government's business. Uh, so, uh, I, I didn't understand why he was uh, engaging in that kind of a conversation. Um, and uh, frankly, uh, we're a small government party. We're supposed to expand people's freedom. And you don't do that by having uh, contenders for prime minister talking uh, about and making judgments about uh, people's person the, 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 the uh, um, personal lives of uh, consenting adults. Do you think the Conservative Party can ever win an election again? if they continue to be associated with people who hold views like that, allow them to run the leadership uh, 
contest, for example? Um, I, I'm not a big believer in banning people from the party, even when I disagree with them. So I, I, I wouldn't, I think your, 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 your question is sort of implies that you, you said allowing them to run. Right. I, I think that we should just defeat bad ideas with better ones. Mm -hmm. Over recent weeks, um, Canada's infrastructure has been crippled by these shutdown Canada protests. Um, and finally today, Justin Trudeau has come out and said that these need to be stopped. We have to clear the tracks. We have to get rid of the protesters who are blocking uh, Canada's infrastructure. What does it say about Justin Trudeau's leadership that it took so long to do that? That he's a weak leader, that uh, he doesn't value uh, basic economic life of Canadians, that he uh, believes in pandering to uh, every radical anti-development protester uh, at the expense of working class people. Mm. Um, and uh, I think this is the only the beginning. The blockaders who were able to successfully bring our rail network to its knees for two weeks uh, will be emboldened by his weakness. And next time they will go further and wider. They will do major damage. And uh, I think we now need to make sure that uh, Trudeau doesn't pay them off, uh, that there's no quid pro quo um, to make them go away, because if there is, then he will only have encouraged, literally encouraged, more of the lawlessness. How should have Justin Trudeau handled it then? What could he have done differently to resolve this? I think he should have signaled to the RCMP that their job is to enforce the law. And uh, I, my suspicion is that he signaled the opposite to them, that he signaled to the leadership of the RCMP that he wanted them to do absolutely nothing. But the Prime um, Minister doesn't have authority over the RCMP to tell them what to do. And presumably we wouldn't want to live in a country where the Prime Minister has that authority. He very easily could have made a public pronouncement that he expects the RCMP to enforce the law, which would have been a statement of truism. Yeah. <laughs> if you say that I expect police officers to enforce the law, it's like saying I'm, I'm expecting that rain will eventually fall from the sky. It's a statement of, tr it's a truism that would have signaled to the leadership of our national police force, that he would, he would back them. I think the worry the RCMP probably had is that if they had enforced the law, they wouldn't have the political backing of the head of government. And, if they, and in that case, would have left themselves exposed to uh, repercussions. You think that was their primary concern? I think very much so. I mean, they know that they're ultimately accountable to the government. Uh, you can't have a police force that has no accountability to the civilian authority. I mean. Then we would then we would actually live in a police state, mm. um, and and so I think the police uh, leadership probably said, "Listen, the prime minister clearly does not want the law enforced. We do not have political backing to do our jobs. We're going to sit back until we get a signal from the head of government, uh, and uh, and so until such time as they get that signal, they're not going to do their jobs." Now he's come out today and given a press conference. We'll see if that signals to the RCMP their uh, ability to enforce the law and uh, what results occur between now and, uh, and the next several weeks. But, um, but frankly, he, he basically signaled that it wasn't his problem, that it wasn't a national concern, the provinces should do it on their own, and that he wanted to keep talking uh, with the lawbreakers, all of which would have signaled to the police that they were not to go in and clear the blockades. Mm -hmm. Uh, when in fact he should have been signaling precisely the opposite. 
He seems to me, Justin Trudeau that is, to be a Prime Minister who in his second term now cares deeply about his legacy. And I think that is manifest in his bid for the UN Security Council seat. How do you think Canada will look back upon Justin Trudeau's Prime Ministerialship? I think he would be wise for the pres preservation of any kind of legacy to uh, to move on more quickly, sooner rather than later, before the consequences of his decisions become apparent. Um, you know, the, eventually the consequences of his deficit spending, his taxation, his anti-development agenda will metastasize into ma major economic pain for everyday Canadians. If he's cunning, he will get out before that pain appears. Uh, if he stays until it does appear, then people will realize that he is the culprit. So if he's smart, and I don't think he's dumb, if he's smart, he'll find a way to move on out sooner rather than later and let some other successor wear the consequences of his decisions. Before the next election? I would, that, that's, that would be smart for him. Yeah. Well, I think that's an interesting point, actually. I look at Christian Freeland, who I think people presume to be the successor, and she seems to be a very competent, capable person. Justin Trudeau in the last election was, as Peter McKay said, like having an empty net and then missing the net, or failing to beat him anyway. Do you think that would then change with Christian Freeland, who doesn't have the same um, allegedly embarrassing record as Justin Trudeau does? Uh, her, her record is his record, though. She can't disassociate herself from the decisions he's made. Um, and, uh, so, and she would bring her own political liabilities. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm not sure that it would be to the salvation of the Liberal Party to simply replace one uh, quasi-socialist um, virtue signaler with another. I think uh, that the, the party would have the same problems. It would agree. She would have the same difficulties, um, although on the, on the surface she do, she doesn't appear to the untrained eye to have all of the same liabilities. Mm -hmm. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to interview Marilyn Gaudieu and indeed Erin uh, O'Toole after that, and a few other leadership candidates. All of them came out and said that we need a serious review of not only the CBC, but also Canadian media as a whole. With a $600 million media bailout, and with the mistakes I think the CBC made in the last election, for example, suing the Conservative Party during an election, do you think that the media in Canada, or at least the establishment media in Canada, is biased? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's a large part of the liberal press gallery uh, exists just to re-elect re and glorify Justin Trudeau. Um, not all of them. There are some uh, good, solid journalists. Um, very few of them are actually in the parliamentary precinct. Um, they're, they work for publications um, off-site. Um, but uh, there's no question that the CBC is increased, CBC News is increasingly becoming the communications department of the liberal PMO. Mm. Um, I mean, it, it was the, their coverage of him is embarrassing. Um, it is sometimes you, you feel like you're just in some um, some faraway land where there are state broadcasters who exist solely for the glorification of the 
dear leader, and, and that's what I witness when I watch CBC's coverage of Justin Trudeau. Well, Aaron O'Toole has come out and said that he would slowly defund the CBC. In particular, he would privatize the English language section of a television broadcast. Should the Conservative Party do that? Is that a policy that you uh, would endorse? I think most of what CBC does is already done by the marketplace. You know, the role of government is to, in, the, in these matters, is to compensate for market failures, to do what the market can't. Do what must be done, but the market's not doing. Mm. Well, if you look at the internet-based news of CBC and the television uh, programming, almost all of it is, is already being done by some other private player, whether it's global um, CTV, in the case of internet news, you've got the Globe and Mail, the uh, National Post, and of course, entrepreneurial upstarts like the Post Millennial, who are in many ways doing better than anyone else. Um, so given that this is already being done by the marketplace, why do we need a state-funded entity to do it? Um, right now, in fact, a lot of what CBC does is just take taxpayer money to compete with the private sector, mm. uh, which is, is clearly not uh, a, uh, uh, the role of, uh, of government. Yeah. What do you think the $600 million media bailout did to the Canadian media industry? What are the consequences of that? I think the, uh, Trudeau, and this is where I think we, we underestimate the, uh, the brain power uh, around the PMO. I think they very cleverly are creating a policy structure to preserve a, a liberal elite media, whether it's the the increased funding for CBC, the $650 million, or now their new changes to the broadcast regulations, all of which are designed to funnel everything to a small group of liberal uh, elites who will dominate the dis continue to dominate the discourse. Now, it was very easy for them to do so, um, you know, 10, 12 years ago when the internet wasn't, and social media weren't the, the driving forces of media. You could have um, the same uh, type of person from reporting for Global, CTV, um, and CBC, all on Parliament Hill, reporting, regurgitating exactly the same liberal bias um, back then. And there was nothing to, there was no competition to it. And whereas now, uh, people who are more right-leaning or who have a different point of view than the punditocracy and the liberal elites on Parliament Hill have other means of getting their information, the post-millennial being an example, social media being another. So what the liberals are now going to try to do is regulate political discourse on the internet to funnel everything back to the old model so that the same um, liberal chatterboxes who ran the show you know, mm. 10, 15 years ago in Canadian media can reclaim control. Yeah, do you think Say, sorry to paraphrase, but it seems to me what you're saying is that the $600 million media bailout was some cynical ploy from the PMO in order to convert the Canadian media world to a pro-liberal pressure group, essentially. Yes, I, I think it was. Um, and Is it working? Uh, it's hard to say uh, whether or not uh, it's working, but I think that it's, it's designed for that purpose. They very deliberately put a unifor on one of the committees that will define eligibility for the money. El Unifor is a, an organization which has endorsed the Liberals. Mm. And so you can expect uh, Unifor and the entire um, 
uh, implementation of this regime to favor uh, liberal-minded um, establishment media over upstart um, contenders uh, who might bring a different point of view. Um, so, I mean, J Justin Trudeau, as he talked about his most recent proposals, are the, the Yale panel's proposals on broadcasting. He said that we need to, to, to protect and promote um, credible uh, media. Well, who's going to decide what's credible? Well, of course, him and the, the little group of elites around him. And uh, so I think there's a very deliberate, well-crafted, state-funded uh, policy agenda by the Liberal government to ensure um, a monopoly or close or oligopoly in opinion around uh, politics, uh, and they're prepared to use a lot of money to do it. What has happened to Canada's international reputation? How has it changed since Justin Trudeau was elected Prime Minister in 2015? Well, I think uh, we now uh, we're sort of seen as uh, uh, the uh, government by surfer. Um, we've got a surfer celebrity who is a um, good-looking guy, kind of fun, interesting from a personal point of view, but um, not a very serious person. And if you look at the way, just the body language with which leaders treat Justin Trudeau at international fora and summits, he's clearly not seen as one of the serious players. You saw how Trump trampled Trudeau in the trade negotiations, giving exactly zero concessions to Canada while forcing us to swallow major concessions in return. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're clearly, as a country, not taken seriously on the world stage today. Um, we, we have a celebrity prime minister, which is good for magazine covers in other countries, but it's not good for getting results for everyday Canadians. Uh, recently, Trudeau has received some flack for coveting the Security Council seat. Do you think Canada should be aiming for that right now? Uh, listen, uh, if you can get it, great, but it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, uh, to, to go around the country, throwing, going around the world, throwing around our nation's tax dollars, trying to buy the favor of foreign dictators, um, is it worth? Is it worth it? Is it worth uh, uh, flipping our vote on uh, Israel, as the prime minister has done, in order to uh, get a few more uh, uh, votes from despots, dictators, and terrorist sympathizers? No, it's not worth any of that. Mm -hmm. So you know, if you could get, if you can get a Security Council seat while preserving your principles and your, do your tax dollars, fine. But it's not worth giving up either of them. So you're originally from Alberta. Yeah. And I believe yesterday we saw the Buffalo Declaration come up. Right. Which is asking for uh, sweeping constitutional reforms in order to fix the inequality, or perceived inequality at least, between Alberta or Western Canada as a whole and Eastern Canada. How have we arrived at a point where that is now seen as a necessary thing to do? How is Western alienation at this breaking point? Well, uh, for my entire lifetime, um, frankly, a, a lot of the central Canadian elite have expected Alberta to pay up and shut up. Mm. And that is not going to go on. It's not That's over. Anymore. It's over. Uh, I can tell you, having Alberta's uh, been, financially speaking, the biggest per capita contributor to Confederation in the last half century. That's not even a debate about that. Mm. Um, and uh, the most Albertans were 
uh, willing to accept that if the country allowed the province to do what it does best, just to work hard and earn a lot of money doing great entrepreneurial things. Mm -hmm. Now, all of a sudden, came to the point where they needed pipelines. And Alberta said, look, we're not asking for any money from the rest of Canada. We just want a bypass so we can quietly build the pipeline. We'll bury it under the ground. You won't even know it's there. And in exchange for that, we'll generate tens of billions of dollars of wealth and we'll even share it with the rest of you. <laughs> and the government of Canada, along with some provincial government, said no. Mm -hmm. And you can understand why Albertans felt betrayed uh, by that uh, posture. Uh, and uh, I think uh, they've had enough. Uh, I completely sympathize with uh, Albertans on their frustration. Um, and uh, we, uh, we need to clear the way for pipelines. We need to get these projects built. We need to make Alberta the comeback kit of Confederation. Uh, and uh, if we don't, there will be very serious economic and national unity consequences. Well, obvious consequences. Well, they're obvious. I don't even have Do to state them. Do you think Western separatism is a real, tangible thing that may happen? I hope not. Mm. Um, you know, Canada needs a strong Alberta and a strong Saskatchewan. Um, I think we need to stay united, and Albertans need to continue to lock arms with other like-minded and sympathetic Canadians to, uh, to change the government. Um, but make no mistake, uh, if anyone, in, who, anyone who underestimates the anger and frustration in Alberta today uh, will face a rude awakening if things don't change. I was interested to see in the Buffalo Declaration that they said that Alberta is being treated like a colony, and I quote colony. Do you think they're right to say that? Would you agree with that? Look, I actually haven't studied the declaration yet. It only came out yesterday. I quickly read it, so I'd rather not comment on its on the contents of the document itself. Mm -hmm. I would simply say that the, uh, again, the Laurentian elite who would like quickly to, do, to dismiss it and go back to uh, a scenario where Alberta just pays up and shuts up is very dangerous, it is unacceptable, and it cannot go on. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so uh, I know there's a lot of people in the, in the, the Laurentian elite who would, would love for the province to go back to its um, quiet uh, acquiescence and its unconditional generosity with nothing in return from Confederation. And I'm telling you, that will no longer happen. I was, I've been to Alberta back to my uh, province of birth to talk with people of various wa walks of life and they've had it. Mm -hmm. It's over. The, the, the mistreatment and the unjustifiable policies, anti-Alberta and anti-Western policies imposed by the Liberal government uh, are not going to be accepted any longer and uh, so we need a, a drastic change in direction uh, that will restore fairness, allow entrepreneurs and uh, investors and workers to generate wealth and create opportunity. And I think we do that, Alberta will be the comeback kid. Look, I grew up in Alberta in, early, in the early 1980s. So my very earliest memories of my surroundings were uh, the National Energy Program, which decimated the province between 1980 and 85. Mm -hmm. After the NEP was lifted, um, 
and between the late 80s and roughly 2014, the province had probably the most impressive period, an almost uninterrupted period of spectacular economic growth. It became, probably had the best economic growth of any jurisdiction in the world, mm. if you look at it in that narrow 35-year period. What does this tell us? It tells us that Alberta can do that again. Alberta can make a spectacular comeback right inside of Canada, but it will need, there will, be, will need to be a drastic change in policies to clear the way for resource development, for free enterprise, and the province will, as I said earlier, will be the comeback kid of Confederation. Yeah. So last question. Yes. I think what everyone's quite excited to know is whether you still hold ambitions to become Prime Minister. I, I'm quite interested in that as well. I, I have no plans of that. Listen, uh, I made the decision that I wasn't, my family wasn't uh, prepared for the enormous uh, undertaking that it involved. Um, and so I'm, I'm definitely not making any uh, plans beyond just serving whomever it is uh, our members decide to elect. And most importantly, more importantly than that, serving the uh, constituents in the great Carleton riding who have. Uh, but they invested their faith in me in six consecutive elections. Right. Pierre, thank you so much. Great to be with you. Thanks for coming.